So once again, I have no idea how to do introductions, but I'm actually recording oh, it right doing, now. Are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, we're so started. <laughs> All right. So there's a my pizza. Yeah, there's a friend of mine, Noah, who lives over in Jersey, who said that he likes how we don't have official introductions on any of these. But uh, this time I've got Mark Reif, who's a longtime friend. I won't say the oldest friend because we're not that old. No. But longtime friend from seminary. Yeah. And what we've done in the past is gotten together sometimes like every five or six weeks. Sometimes two months, depends if you're out of the country. Six months, year six and a half. Year. I mean, we, there's moments where it's not like, we're not regimented by, about it. No. No. But every so often, we'll be like, you know what? It's time to sit down at our local restaurant and over beers talk life and faith and theology yeah. and Bible and church yeah. and everything for... Is the record like four hours yeah, straight? It's easy for. I mean, like the last time we went out to Iron Hill, we were there for four. We got there four like hours, five, yeah, five, and we were there until nine thirty. Nine, yeah, third, almost five. Mm -hmm. But Mark has always been one of the better people to sound off ideas with, and so I thought it would be really interesting for those of you to finally get the chance to listen to some of our conversations. So we're going to set the timer because we're not going to go for four and a half hours. We might, but we might just <laughs> we stop might. the recording. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, the topic is Palm Sunday because we're going to, I'm going to upload this on Palm Sunday so people can download it that day. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I think it would be best. I have a few questions that I have in my mind, but I don't want to ask them up front. I'd rather have them come up later on. Yeah. So before we do anything, let's recap who you are, what are your interests, oh, and why are you Mennonite? Why am I Mennonite? <laughs> All right. So you're, it's like sort of an introductory thing, like who yeah. am I and where I come from. Let your yep. listeners know yep. what they're getting into. Yep. Where they should look for the heretic when they're ready to burn him, that kind of thing. That works. I'm from southeastern Pennsylvania. I'm purebred Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, I was born in a Mennonite, you know, I'm sorry, I've been going to a Mennonite church since I was born. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, that being said, I definitely resonate a lot with Anabaptism mm -hmm. and a Christocentric perspective on the Bible that puts Jesus at the, you know, the core of that, right? So it's... Uh -huh. Yeah, not like you mainline liberals or <laughs> mainline conservatives who like have all these other things coming in. I just really like the simplicity of mm -hmm. you got Jesus and you got his followers and you're trying to be one of his followers. And so I think that's sort of what leaves me still in a Mennonite church. At the same time, uh, I'm really excited about the Mennonite church I'm a part of right now. But I don't know if I'd necessarily go to a Mennonite church if I wasn't there. So I'm, oh, yeah. I'm a lot more congregationally motivated. Okay. And and picky with my pastors are you really <laughs> yeah why yeah. there's just so many bad sermons <laughs> there's just so many um okay like yeah just stale stories I, I guess i like to find sermons that are really willing to wade into tension oh yeah right because like yeah. there's a lot of people who they want to do something polished they want to do something nice there's you know it, it's tough being a pastor because in some ways everyone who you're preaching to you have to keep them happy, 
to an extent, mm-hmm. uh, or at least not make them too angry because they could drive you out. And like that's that's your that's your paycheck. So right. I respect the pastors who are willing to wade into that tension and face it head on, um, and just sort of put it there. Not that they have to fix everything because there's not like we're going to fix all the tension in the world. Um, yeah. But find the tension in passages, find the tension in our culture. And just put it on the table and say, what do you guys want to do about this? What do you think God's calling us to? Mm-hmm. That seems interesting. And it's edgy. It usually makes people squirm in their seats, which is fun for me to watch. Because I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a high tolerance for squirming in a sermon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was that one time I visited your church and you told me to flip open to a hymn. Oh, you yeah. guys just did. It was a couple and of years like, before. Yeah. Look at look at verse number four yeah. or something. It was verse 2, I think. Verse 2. And it was... Jesus is raging, raging in the streets. <laughs> yeah. Which is like one of the best lines, yeah. opening lines for a hymn verse ever. Yeah. Because I don't think anyone has ever associated Jesus with the the verb rage. No. With the emotion rage. No. Except for John Eldridge. John Eldridge definitely did. <laughs> John, Eldridge. John Eldridge was all about that. Like, that was the unifying yeah. theme to his whole Christology. <laughs> He's like William Wallace. <laughs> yeah. But, no, I mean, that's a contemporary hymn, so it's a cool one. But it's not like an old hymn. Right, but that's something I, I do like about the Mennonite Anabaptist tradition, is they seem to be more straightforward with addressing politics than I've seen yeah. other churches. I mean, I've been around with yeah, Methodist, well, some Catholic churches do it. Presbyterian, but I feel as though if you live in mainline Christianity, you're probably not going to hit too hard yeah. on that stuff. I mean, that's a broad brush. I mean, you know, in our congregational life, there's we actually don't really talk about politics on hard on a day to day basis. We'll brush up against it, and mm. everyone has. I mean, the people in the pews oftentimes have very strong views. But we sure. don't talk about them because we're Mennonite. Uh, right, like, because <laughs> that would be too much conflict, and so we're still like, you know, just like every other church person. But right. um, no, I, I mean, I, and I talk about when I talk about being a Mennonite, I'm more of a Ron Sider Mennonite, and I know that that might yeah. sound really. No, I get it. It makes sense in the sense that there's a lot of Mennonites who are very liberal and social justice oriented, and that's not a bad thing. And there are a lot of Mennonites who are evangelical, James Dobson Mennonites, right? And, yeah, yeah. And Ron Sider really calls calls both of those things and tries to hold them in tension, you know, with both having a, a real belief in evangelism and the salvific work of God and all the supernatural that goes with that. Right. Um, while we, also having were a social we in that concern. class together. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. one with Ron. Yeah. yeah. And he was talking about social action alongside mm-hmm. evangelizing or mm-hmm. alongside the Christian message. But like, there's different like popular Mennonites, and so in the in the sect, like I'm happy that I can sort of say that I'm part of his his school of thought. Um, gotcha. Yeah. I mean, you worked with him directly, right? Yeah, I was a cider scholar. Uh, now he doesn't live far from from me, up up in my neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah. He's good and retired. Good and retired. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's talk about Palm Sunday then. All right. So. I did a quick look on my phone right now. I thought the triumphant entry, Palm Sunday, only happened in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They actually also happened in John. Where does it happen in Luke? Because I looked for Luke, and I actually Luke couldn't find 19. it. Luke 19. All right. 
and then John 12 and Mark yeah. 11 and yeah. Matthew 21. You're the employed pastor. I'll believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I did a Google search, so gotcha. I'll throw myself under the bus. <clears throat> but it's one of the events that shows up across all four biographies. Mm-hmm. So rather than go through the difference of all four, yeah, we'll just no quick fun. summarize. It well, is, I mean, like, can't you just, I mean, we can just sort of recap, right? Like, we, yeah. you know, because they, they fall in the line of the themes. So, like, Luke was the historian. John's yep. a bit more narratively oriented. The Book of Mark is the sports center of the Gospels. Right. It's the highlight reel. Immediately this. Yeah. And immediately yeah, that. And exactly. Immediately, yeah. And, you know, you're on your way and you're asleep by 1130. Um, and then Matthew is all jacked up about talking to Jewish audiences. So it really connects to the prophecy stuff. And, and really tries to connect him to the Jewish prophetic lineage. Yes. Yeah. Boom. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one of the things I enjoy talking about you is I don't feel like I have to catch you up to speed with other things. Yeah. Probably because you also went to seminary, but that's just a fun I thing. don't, yeah, I mean, I think it's also, I have to be, a, I'm a consultant by trade now. Like, that's sort of what I do. So I just have to, like, listen to someone and then be able to fill in all the blanks and uh, operationalize as fast as possible. Mm. So it's like, oh yeah, I get that. That sounds about right. And then usually you just make a lot of assumptions. Mm. And sometimes it can make me sound like I'm mansplaining things. But I have a good fiance who would probably be like, yeah. <laughs> Mark mansplains. Okay. So without resorting to mansplaining. Yeah. What is the, the triumphant entry to you? What is Palm Sunday to you? The week before Easter. <laughs> it is the week. Well, it's, it's the, the before Sunday Easter. before Easter. But yeah. So it is the event where Jesus comes to the gate in Jerusalem, and he's riding a donkey, yep. and the whole crowd is there, not yeah. just disciples, it's actually people from Jerusalem, and they're laying down alms, and he's walking across them, riding the donkey, and they're all singing Hosanna, glory to him in the highest. Yeah. Is this like where his fame peaks? Like his human fame? Like this is the closest I time? I think you might be right. Right? Like, because from here on out, it... It goes, it's, it goes it's downhill. downhill. <laughs> it's downhill. Yeah. So, like, this is the peak of his celebrity. Yeah, probably, you probably could say that. Yeah. Yeah. The triumphant entry was his red carpet moment. Yeah. And then after that. And in what, was it one week that he he got taken down? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, All right. less than a week. Yeah. So that's the thing I want to know. Okay. You think the people who are cheering for him are the same people who were there telling him to crucify him? You think so? I think they were. Absolutely. Right. How do you get from one spot to another in a week? To where you're willing to sell out the guy that you were celebrating as Messiah? I mean, I get like Peter did that too to some extent, but like, what's the psychology in that? The, the group think? I guess the group So think. there's the whole crowd that thinks Jesus is amazing. And yeah. they're singing Hosanna. Great. Our king is finally here. Yeah. And then in less than a week's time, they're also along the same road to Golgotha, spitting yeah. at him. Exactly. Saying, crucify him. I mean, like, assuming these people woke up that morning and didn't think they were evil, right? Like, that's the, that's kind of the... It's easy to be like, whatever, they were Nazis, right? You know, like, those were just people who were, you know, right. in that grouping and to, and to put them away. But, like, if you were that person... Uh-huh. How do you say, I'm a good person... And you go from one stop, you know, one second, like, supporting uh, this guy, cheering for him, and then the next second being like, no way, forget that dude. Did you just never believe in him in the first place? Did you believe in him being a, a, an empire or a messiah? 
and now that he's not really doing the things you were expecting to, or Rome came and punched back and, and he was taking it, you were like, oh, oh, I give up. Yeah. Like, how do you, assuming these were just, like, let's assume they're okay. not morons or, or evil. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or controlled by Satan. So, I was always told that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the turning point that made people hate Jesus was when he cleansed the temple. Hmm. When he overthrew things and right. he was whipping animals, getting them out because people were making religion into being profit gaining. Gotcha. But that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yeah. But that the turning point in John's the gospel who says something too too inappropriate, right? Like in their sermon, right? They, they don't wait into tension because they don't want to. They don't want to turn into the. They don't want to turn into the Jesus who flipped the, the table. Appropriate. And gets crucified. Yeah. <laughs> it's the. But then in John's gospel, the turning event is when he raises Lazarus. And it's at that point it says that the Pharisees determined to kill him uh. and started spreading rumors and saying we gotta take him out. So there's kind of a difference of opinion there between those gospels if you want to look at it. So it's just really a busy week. That's what ends up happening here. Like it's in one week, just because of the events that happened, like everyone just got, you know, all jacked up on emotion. And so because of what he did, he really blew up his spot so much that people were ready to to kill him, spit on him, mock him, the same people. Let's let's ask if it wasn't like religious frenzy. They loved Jesus, and they're like, yes. And then as soon as he didn't fit their perfect mold, that same positive religious frenzy turned visceral hmm. and angry. Yeah, maybe. And maybe. I mean, there's groupthink, and we can also go into scapegoat mechanism, but that's later on in the week. This is... Yeah, I got another idea. Okay. What if it's like Romero, right? Oh, Oscar. Yeah, like Romero, he he had... That was a a great quote. Yeah, I sent you that quote. Yeah, I like that one. Great quote. About being, the saints being ambitious. Mm -hmm. But like, so Romero, he he was an art, he was, what, an archbishop? Mm-hmm. Is that is that okay, I'm, I'm Mennonite. Mm-hmm. We're flat church people. We don't get all that. Um, but like, <laughs> Romero was like an archbishop, and and he was expected to like toe the, the Catholic line, and he didn't. He was friendly with revolutionaries. He pushed the buttons, mm-hmm. um, and then he was killed behind um, the altar. Right? Yeah, behind they the altar as the he church. was yeah serving mass. Right, like. Um, I mean, it's not a good way to go, but it's a pretty baller way to go if you're a saint, right? Like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's horrifying and terrible, and it's even more terrible when you actually understand how much the CIA was probably connected to it, so it was the U.S. government, but another story in and of yeah. itself. Right. In that essence, though, what if people cheered Jesus on Palm Sunday because they thought he was here for their political gain. And when he didn't serve their political ends, they realized yeah. he needed to be eliminated because he became a threat. I believe that. That, make, that, that could hold water in my brain. So it, it was really... He didn't fit their political framework? Yeah. Like, Because I do think a lot of it, Hosanna, Hosanna glory to God in the highest but here comes a king that we've been waiting for Mm -hmm. coming through the gate that David used back in the day Mm -hmm. but the thing is I also I like the idea that the triumphant entry is a mockery of Mm -hmm. Roman Mm -hmm. kingship 
then instead of riding a royal stag in, he's riding a donkey. Instead of yeah. w- riding a war horse, mm. he's riding the servant animal. Mm-hmm. So I feel like yeah. some of those people in the crowd be like, yes, our our king is coming. Yeah. And then be like, why is he on a donkey? <laughs> like, you can almost imagine some of them were like a little perplexed, but maybe they were still singing glory, glory. Maybe they were just happy because it was their guy. Oh. Uh, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, it mocks Roman, Roman stuff, but... It was their way of having a Roman-esque party. Yeah, the other question I want to have, have us chew on, though, is why do we even celebrate Palm Sunday? Are there Constantinian overtones in it? How, how does that relate to Constantine for you? Well, so in the same way that it's a, a Roman triumphant entry, mm-hmm. um, as, as Christianity aligns with the halls of power, of you know, as the, yep. the human empire aligns with with God's kingdom, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, this is something that would make sense for a king who says, "Oh, this is like my Palm Sunday," or for a Holy Roman Emperor who'd be like, "Yes, just as on Jesus on Palm Sunday mm-hmm. rode into Jerusalem, I too shall do that." And in fact, if there's Muslims living there, we'll kill them on the way. Gosh, right? You, you know, yeah. you get sort of that fervor that gets behind the uh, the Crusades and everything. Mm-hmm. Why is you know, why is this story such a big deal? Sorry, I finished my, my question as you were still biting off a piece of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Well, there is the idea that all four of the Gospels are really all passion narratives. They just each have very long introductions leading up to it. So it's like every single of the four Gospels is really about the passion of Jesus. Hmm. But it's like reclaiming the original meaning, passio, meaning suffering. And I think that there's some legitimate callbacks to the servant songs back in Isaiah that make mention of this this servant is coming. Mm-hmm. This servant is going to suffer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the Isaiah fifty three. Yeah. Um, he will be marred beyond recognition at mm-hmm. one point. So, I think you probably could say Palm Sunday is important because of Easter and how opposite. Well, because yeah. of Good Friday. Yeah, that it's almost like. Like you because said, of the arc, because of the whole arc of the character. It makes Good Friday sting yeah. even more hmm. that it's that this is the same people that used to sing Glory, Glory are mm-hmm. now singing Crucify. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Would we have the same investment or the same reaction to Good Friday if he wasn't just celebrated? I would hope so. Right? I mean, like, yeah. what? Is, is the thing that really gets us, like, spiritually transformed a good plot? I mean, like, it, <laughs> you know, you can look at how much, how popular the Pixar movies are, and they're great at telling stories and how right. much they pull on That's people. Right. Like, may, you know, there's probably some of that that plot arc. And, I mean, I, I was one of the people who was watching, who watched The Passion and, and had to sit there and, like, weep for 20 minutes after it ended because of how well Mel Gibson formed the plot around the, the, right. the Passion story. Right. Um, 
there's definitely something in the narrative that can connect us and help us to in invest in him. I think we'd be just as bummed if you remove the palm, I, you know, if you remove that Palm Sunday story. I mean, I think it's like, I think it's like window dressing. Okay. I think if you, you know, you actually were a follower of Jesus, whether or not he walked in on a donkey or whether he just showed up and started flipping temples in the, you know, flipping tables <laughs> in the temple. I imagine that would still pretty that would still sting pretty much. Yeah. And then Oh man. I feel as though some of these stories that we read from the gospels or New Testament or Old Testament wherever there there's something in them that unlocks when you realize the problem still happens today. Okay. So, okay, maybe we would have the same reaction to Good Friday and Jesus' crucifixion, even if we didn't have Palm Sunday. But I feel like we have to ask the question, why did the original authors find this an important episode to record? Yeah, that's a good question. Right? And I feel as though there might be some elements of like this. There's a perennial wisdom to all of this. It's almost like be careful of who you celebrate, mm -hmm. or even like be careful of yeah. how much you are even celebrated. Mm -hmm. Like the master is a servant is not greater than his master. Um, you might think you're on top of the world and everybody's singing your praises, but that can be a massive ego trip. Mm -hmm. And if you remember that that God's own ministry was stripped down and destroyed in less than a week's time. What makes you think that's not also possible for you? Yeah. So. Well, the vested, the human vestiges of God's ministry were stripped down. Yeah. I mean, because really the work of God was still present and on point. On point. That whole time. Yeah. Almost, you could almost say it was a refinement. I mean, think about, think about like Peter's story where he, you know, he was looking to chop guys' ears off and whatnot. I mean, and then comes to realize that his Lord is not what he thought him to be. That it's not yeah, a, a, not a, a militaristic you know, messiah, but rather... I think when I, when I think about Palm Sunday, I cannot help but associate it with humility. Hmm. And I, there's even an element of the whole Passion Week leading up to Easter... It's like it exemplifies humility of God the whole time through. And there's a band that I really like called My Epic that have a song called Lower Still, hmm. which is like a gorgeous song in its own right. But it says, like, look, here's a, a baby that's covered in dirt, born. Here he is washing the disciples' feet. Here he is doing this. And then the, the chorus or the refrain is, but no one knows how, how lower he has yet to go. And it's, yeah. it's a whole song about yeah. humility. And the beautiful thing huh. is, it hits to a big point, like strip off the clothes from his back, make him crawl through the streets, lower still, lower yeah. still. Hang him like meat on a criminal's tree, lower still, lower still. Bury his corpse in the ground like a seed, lower still, lower still. Like, oh my gosh. And then it has this like giant breakdown that happens when resurrection comes around. But then it says, 
and everyone else will sing his praises as everyone's head bows lower still, lower still, because of the humility of this king. And so the lower still gets reapplied to everyone else because like you've got to give honor to someone who gave up honor. Yeah. I was like, that is such a brilliant play. It's probably my favorite song on that album. Yeah. Um, and the guy that sings it, he's kind of falsetto, but then the like guitars are means it's like really high pitched. Yeah. All right. (laughs) But uh, the guitars are low and they crunch and it's Mm. like a metal song with like and you're like oh man. Um. So really, the whole week of Easter week. I guess this year, because every time you come across Palm Sunday or Easter or Christmas, there might be like a new depth or a new theme that resonates with you. And I feel as though this year, what's resonating the most is probably humility for you. Yeah. Hmm, that's cool. There's um, a few weeks ago, I met with Jack Caputo, who's a former professor at Villanova. Hmm. And uh, he wrote on... The, what happens in the name of God? So, like, when you say you've experienced God, mm-hmm. what does that mean? What is being referenced behind that word, God? Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, and he talks about how all theology is somehow also anthropology. Mm-hmm. That everything, that I mean, Karl Barth would also say the same thing. When you talk about Jesus, you're actually not doing theology or even anthropology. You're doing theoanthropology, the God-man. And so by looking at the God-man, you can do two things. You can see something about what God is like, and you can also see something of what you're supposed to be like. And so Mm -hmm. by looking at the story of Palm Sunday and the Passion Narrative, and even the humility of the Christmas event of a king born in a stable... What does that say to the human experience of the greatest being, potentially, of the entire mm-hmm. universe took the lowest form possible? Mm-hmm. And how can we not follow suit? Mm-hmm. But that's that's my theme. If you were to yeah. like to guess at a theme that resonates for you this year, do you have any I idea? Don't, I don't think I have one off the top of my head. I mean, I... It's okay if you don't. Yeah, I know. I, I'll get there. I'm sure I'll get there in the next week or so. I, I usually don't start until Palm Sunday, right? So, like, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll work into something by, by Good Friday time that sticks with me or something like that. I mean, I think for me, you know, both this time and then also around Christmas, I, I can be reminded of the time I got to go to Israel and Palestine and got to check out the holy sites and, yeah. and just... The experiences that I had there to be reminded of how I experienced God in those um, in unique ways and did you walk through some of these gates yeah probably so you may have walked through some of the gates that he rode it through yeah it's possible yeah they're a little different now though <laughs> I, well I understand that but is it probably the same hole in the wall same placement? I don't know, man. I, I guess it is. It, you know, it's been fought over so many times. It's been, you know, there's there's a lot that's changed. Uh, and they've really built, like, they built on top of the old city, right? So, like, the old city's built up, right? So, there's, like, you know, you go down deeper and you're like, this was actually a roadway. And you realize it's, a, like, a bit lower than everything else, if I remember right. Hmm. So, I don't, I mean, traditionally, like, you know, I don't know what makes a place really holy or not, but... 
it's nice that it's like the same place, right? But at mm-hmm. the same time, it's also if this is the place we've decided to have that meaning, there's a there's a depth of meaning in that too. So be like, what if you were Jesus walking through something like this right now, or yeah. witnessing him come in through a gate like this now? Um, and then you put that alongside, you know, just the state of existence that Israel and Palestine is in um, yeah. with the conflict there, and it it's an experience. It's it's definitely an interesting experience. It's one that you can take a lot of different directions which in some ways is fitting right because you also look at this the Easter week the holy week mm-hmm. where you have this crazy arc of emotion and everything else and and you, you can feel that you can feel that because of just how much how much emotion there is there in Israel and Palestine now too right so I like get that's kind of cool in that sense yeah. as well uh-huh. um, I wonder if I wonder if there is actually a touristic leveraging that the conflict like there's like a there's like a way that 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 uh anxiety and fear yeah of the conflict might actually be something that like gets christians at least excited i imagine (laughs) yeah i don't know i wonder if it like benefits their tourism industry i'm sure wait so you're saying i'm wondering i'm not saying (laughs) (laughs) but what you're telling me is some people may or may not throughout the t- throughout human history use religion for other <laughs> ends. I don't even. Are you saying this is a possibility? I'm not saying they're intentionally doing that. Uh, I think that there is a possibility that people who go to Israel and Palestine, uh-huh. there's like a, there's something interesting because you don't know what's around the right next corner. The only problem is what's around the next corner could be someone who's going to stab you, right? But like, there's just that level of heightened awareness that probably feeds some of the experience, the, the spiritual oh. experience of being in the Holy Land. I'm wondering. Well, okay, but if you go back, Judas Iscariot mm-hmm. was probably a member of the Sicarii. The Sicarii were the gemple, the gemple, the Jewish temple's elite bodyguards. They were named after their knives. Huh. The Sakari knives were something small. And so what these Jewish revolutionaries would do is they'd be hired by particular members of the temple to walk out into the marketplace and literally walk up and stab someone who is maybe a threat to the temple and then walk away. Oh. So there's guesses like Iscariot might be actually a reference to Judas being one of the Sakari huh. and who has potentially a violent background but actually, in some sense, has his own strong piety towards the temple, uh, which was probably prevalent in gotcha. a lot of people. Yep. A lot of people are like, the temple is where our spirituality at, is yeah, at. And so here's Jesus throwing over tables uh, and saying, this thing will be torn down in three days, not knowing they're actually, he was talking about them yeah, himself, yeah. being the temple, and then eventually all of us are the temple. But yep. Yeah, no, keep yeah. going. There's the religious fervor, I yeah. guess. Yeah, there's definitely a religious fervor. The frenetic, yeah. um, Jesus just came along and completely changed the game or exposed the mm-hmm. the lie of what bad religion had become in his day, mm-hmm. and. This is one of the things that I really find fascinating is 
We are so good at talking about Jesus from a soteriological. So it has to do with saving, mm-hmm. saving us, saving the world, saving the cosmos, whatever. We're really bad at talking about Jesus as being sophiological, a wisdom teacher, Sophia wisdom. Mm. And so I feel as though I'm sometimes around other people and uh, the way that they talk about the life of Jesus, I'm like, you're talking almost all in soteriological Mm -hmm. and you're not really paying attention to the deep wisdom and how mm-hmm. he's actually overthrowing a number of things that mm-hmm. really apply to yeah. today. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just had a Phillies Eagles parade. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to bash it because I went to it. I was there at 7 a.m. Actually, mm-hmm. I was there at 6 a.m. to get a good spot. But we love to have heroes, and we seem to love to crucify them also. Uh, our celebrities, we love our celebrities. And then there's almost like a little, I don't know if you want to say a fix, but it does something that does. feels like in the American psyche of, yeah, yeah, he, we picked him up, but he fell hard too. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe the whole thing, like humility just undoes that whole thing. What does, yeah, what, yeah. We love to crucify our leaders. Well, yeah. Is it? So, I mean, today, actually, at work, I was working on, I have a client who's trying to figure out um, some of how they talk about impact, um, and the impact they want to have on their programming, they want their programming to have on people that they work with. Um, Okay. And so, because of that, I was was rereading, I went through the transcript that Brene Brown did on on vulnerability, Mm -hmm. um, and I, I thought that was pretty fascinating. Generally, I mean, we all know it was, everyone knows it's generally pretty fascinating what she's thought through, what she's sort of articulated for, for folks. But at the same time, you know, the hero mentality is this mentality that they, they, they're without weakness. But the humility that forces you to, to own that vulnerability up front and say that you're still, there's still a worthiness there. I mean, she, she falls on, you know, it almost falls into the space of uh, the Imago Dei, right? The image of God in people. That there's um, a worthiness even despite the despite the vulnerabilities, but the limitations, wow. and and so like the people who sometimes we're unable to have connections with people because we're not willing to accept and display our weaknesses, um, because we think if we display those weaknesses, it creates shame, and and therefore we we, can, we aren't worthy of love. We we all want to love or and connection be or community exactly, right. um, and so in the same sense. I think we, what she said though was people do a lot of things to numb the emotions that they don't want, right? And so if you start to, and so one of the things that she named though was to blame people. And she sort of said our political discourse now is one that we all blame people and that's because we're trying to numb or distract from the, the, the feelings that we have that we don't want to focus on, right? Wow. So... The hero cycle could yes. be another one of these coping mechanisms. The hero cycle you're talking about, right? So yeah. we, we put these people on pedestals. We put Nick Foles on a pedestal, and yeah. we think he's great. Until next season, he has to start the first game for Carson Wentz and throws a pick, and we're going to be jumping all over his back thinking he's terrible. Or because he you know, decides he wants to articulate his Christian faith too prominently and says something that's not politically correct, and then people decide to crucify him for that. 
Well, let's say he has a family fallout. Or, yeah. What would the Christian community do to him uh, if he had a family fallout? That would be bad. Okay, I but the hero not. cycle. Yeah, so the hero cycle. What, what would you say are the stages of, a, of the hero cycle then? It would be a figure comes along. Yeah. So probably from within the tribe. Yeah. And, and is shown to be exemplary in some capacity. Yep. So that's the first. Someone thing. that you can feel some connection to. Right. Yeah, like this this guy's one it's of us. It's a promising connection that you A want to watch. So there's an entertainment value to it. Okay. And B, there's some you want to cheer for them because you want to think that they can like Because that, that might be you. That they're above and beyond the, the feelings uh, that you don't want to own for yourself. Okay. Yeah. And so then when they fall, you can blame them and say, oh, why did I ever believe in you? Because you were wrapped up in them too. And this is your way of numbing it as well. So I'm wondering if the hero cycle has something to do with that coping mechanism or that numbness. Coming back to Jesus then, yeah. in the humility, and, in his vulnerability, yeah. you would essentially have, you have, a, you have a God who says, you need to be vulnerable. And you need to trust me. Wow. Yeah. And it's gonna it's gonna suck. It's gonna be miserable. But I've given you my image, and that image that's within you mm. makes you deems you worthy. Wow. And so you don't have to be worried about the shame or the. What's the what's the Roman context on uh, fame or attention? Didn't they always talk about Roman? Did they really? Roman social structure sort of said that there's only so much fame to go around and so the you know the best of the best rose to the top um oh and so it was a limited resource basically so you so basically kind of if like one person's rising another person has to be falling yeah, yeah okay um i don't i'm not you know i'm not terribly well read on that but i feel like i've heard it somewhere um and that's what the jewish people i think wanted from jesus because they wanted him to be their guy. Their guy. Their hero. It's almost like they also wanted him to be um, the ego ideal. Like what they hoped they could achieve. Yeah. But maybe they didn't get to achieve because of their life circumstances. Yeah. I feel as though the hero is often like you said, there's some sort of identification with. Mm -hmm. There's some sort of entertainment value. Maybe you get something out of it, but I also feel as though the hero has something to do with the myth of what you tell yourself. If they could make it and be a celebrity, mm. then I can make it. And maybe yeah. hold out hope to some degree, but the thing is, it's still a matter of identification with, Yeah, this is our guy. Yeah, I think it's, I think there's layers to that, right? So it's not even just that they can identify and say, I could do it if he can do it. Like, that they can be the hero. Uh -huh. But it's even that they they saw that he was on the rise and they believed in him or her. We so it kind of proved their... We should be that biased. Absolutely. But there was a like a validation then. Exactly. Like, I believed in this guy yeah. three years yeah. ago when he first turned water into wine. Yeah. And I am... As I've gotten older and become an adult and work a normal, relatively normal schedule, yeah, 
I continue to recognize how much how easy it is to put life on autopilot. Yeah. Right. So it's easy to be like, well, what what show is going to start its new season next? Mm-hmm. What event's going to come around the corner? Which sports season is going to start up again? We have baseball starting in a week, and right. I'm excited about that. And that's like a touch point for me. But it's so easy to just sort of to become numb, like what Brene Brown was talking about. Mm-hmm. And so, in some ways, we say, here's this hero, and they'll be cool for a while, and uh, then we need to move on to the next hero anyway. So even if they don't don't fall apart, they're gonna their 15 minutes are gonna be over, because we've already gotten everything we want from well, them. That's but that's true though. There is it's a machine. Yeah. It's because there were also failed messiahs that came before and after Jesus. Mm-hmm. The most famous one was the Bar Kokhba revolt. It was like yep. one thirty. But the thing is, was it before? No, no, I think you're, I think oh, it was right. I'm not going to fight with you on dates. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rusty on that. But I remember thinking, like, the scapegoat mechanism relies on there, there always needs to be another scapegoat. There needs mm-hmm. to be a room to have another scapegoat. Mm-hmm. Is there this idea, like, okay, one of our hero dropped. Now we need to find a new hero. What is it with our fixation to find a new hero? Is it that we just need to be, we need to have stories to entertain us? To keep us in fantasy rather than reality? To numb us from the emotions and the feelings that we don't want to focus on. Wow. So then what does it do when the, the scriptures have like pain and suffering and the absence of God sometimes too? Of like, where was God? God was not in this place. Oh wait, God was in this place. But like, yeah, all the bad pastors don't preach about that. (laughs) Right. Like at the, if you were to summarize Christianity by one symbol, it would be the cross. It's like the central event in the entire Old Mm. and New Testament. True is pain and suffering, loneliness, death destitution we could keep going yeah but you see it's like by having that at the forefront it it's almost like you can have courage to look at these things because these things are not the end yeah but the thing is and it maybe this this kind of goes back to palm sunday one of the things i learned in palm in uh at the lutheran seminary in philadelphia is luther had the idea of the theology of glory and the theology of cross the theology of glory says that the road to glory is glorious. And then he, Martin Luther came along and be like, no, that's bull. Yeah. Because my life is crap. And he said, the road to glory actually has a cross on the way. Hmm. And so there's a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And I think we all want to believe in a theology of glory that says the road to glory will always be glorious. Hmm. And we don't want to admit that there is pain and suffering. But those... In all honesty, if I look back over my own life, the moments that have transformed me the most, yeah, there were celebrations, there were moments of love and unacceptable, uh, what am I trying to say? Unconditional love Mm -hmm. from family and friends. But I think the things that transformed me the most were sitting in the pain or the loneliness or the negatives what is it 
about the Christian narrative that keeps those things around. Lots of hope of Easter, but that's not really the point of this podcast. <laughs> not this episode, right? Yeah. Palm Sunday. Oh, man. So, I mean, we can yeah. transition if you want to transition. Sure. Go ahead. We have Palm Sunday, and then some people celebrate Monday, Thursday, some people celebrate Good Friday. Uh huh. Then you got like Silent Saturday, then you got Easter Sunday, right? Yep. You were talking about Jesus flipping tables and Jesus healing Lazarus and. What are the other things that are silent in this week that we just don't actually recognize? So, like, if we actually had a timeline, Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday. Like, what and happened then, Monday and Tuesday? Yeah. Like, what are the things that we're not, we don't really focus on or might not have in our default memories of the Easter story? We're like, yeah, Palm Sunday, cool. I'll worry about it next weekend, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, like, obviously, if there are inflection points for the people in Jerusalem, I imagine they should be baked into us a bit better, probably as Christians. Mm. I mean, there are some Bible passages that talk about Jesus was setting up the dinner party. Like he said to one person, hey, well, go like, over there. He had to go to like rent a venue and hire a DJ. And <laughs> <laughs> He did have to rent the upper room. <laughs> um, oh gosh. Yeah, what happened on Monday and Tuesday? Well, he said, like, he flipped, he, you know, he turned over the temple. Right. Threw a fit there. He was interrogated, interrogated by the temple at night. Yeah. We don't really talk about that as much on Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday is more about foot washing. Yeah, it's true. Than it is about a midnight trial that yeah. was biased. Yeah. Why? Are you going to do a Monday, Thursday episode or am I going to blow this up, right? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, why, what do you think would be another central turning point moment? I have no idea, but you just said that, like, you know, people turned on him when he turned the temple over, and that could make sense if Judas Iscariot was, yeah, was real temple-oriented, or at least had a history of that, where he's like, oh, yeah, I really love Jesus, this guy's awesome, and then he's like, oh, maybe not, you know, like, he's sort of torn a little bit, and then that, like, pushes him over the edge, right, like, he insulted the temple like that. Oh. And I've killed men for much worse, right? Like That's probably true. <laughs> that is probably true. I've, or I've killed men for much less than that. Um, right. And so he's like, how can I kill this guy too? Yeah, and some people wonder if Judas accepting the 30 pieces of silver wasn't, um, in some sense, a, a pushing of Jesus' hand. Like Judas was thinking, like, okay, he's got to kick into like general attack mode soon right maybe if i get a garrison here he's gonna uh, he's gonna bust out yeah and instead he walks over kisses him on the cheek yeah there's an incident with malchus's ear which you just yeah. referenced <laughs> but the it's garrison like the dad with tough love who's trying to get his, his like kid to toughen up yeah so, so he has his kid be tackled by a football yeah, player yeah. while he's not wearing Let, pads let's him get beat up a little bit and he's like i just want to get him to fight <laughs> it could be and then and this is a really hard thing to swallow, but people are really curious by the passage where Jesus turns to Judas and says, go and do what you are supposed to do now. Like, yeah, we, some people chalk that up to like Jesus knew because he was yeah. God, but some people also wondered if like Jesus had a private conversation with Judas and said, listen, 
for the cosmic scope of the redemption of everything, I need you to betray me. Well, that guy have gone and hung himself if that was the case. If if he was like if he had that level of connection with Jesus. Yeah. I mean, and he knew that he was playing his part in the like unless the apostles were just really mean to him afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would think that if he had that level of connection, then he wouldn't have driven himself to to ha- you know to give it up. Yeah. Um, my guess point. is he didn't. You right. know that's that. a that's a pretty scandalous interpretation of that um, single. Verse. It's true. Like, wasn't that like the Gospel of Judas? Like that. Uh, that didn't someone find that that manuscript and they were like, "Oh yeah, Judas is a hero." I'd be like, uh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of shades of meaning. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that one's in the dark. <laughs> but that one, yeah, that that gospel's dated to be back in the 200s or something. Yeah. The other ones were dated to the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We are uh, we're at time. So okay. First podcast. I've never done this before. <laughs> I hope I didn't ruin it. Yeah. Um, listeners would be well, like, I don't want to eat him anymore. Yeah, we just need people to tweet and be like, never do this again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But I think it was a good conversation. Thanks for letting me uh, hang out and chat about stuff. And yeah. And uh, I don't. I count it as an honor that you would want to record the things I say. So I don't take that lightly. Well, um, yeah. It's a... But it's a privilege that you'd be willing to. So just thanks. like, just like I tell my fiance, though, you might, you might be sick in the head if you appreciate the things I do. <laughs> I joke with her about that. <laughs> I'm not going to insult the people that do listen to this because I appreciate them. But <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to say they're, they're not sick in the head if they listen to me. Hopefully, they, they're just. No, you're worth listening to. I believe you're worth listening uh, to. I think you deserve a podcast and all those things. <laughs> Well, thanks. Yep. Because I don't get paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Cheers.